Topping Talks. Hundred and five hours a week, can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Talks is also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Have to say he's quite handsome and brilliant. For a business in Texas, I can use a hand. You can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy. If you are, then perfect. ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give a 100% guarantee via their 30-day back money guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say today I'm interviewing Al Lawrence, who's the IT Service Process Manager at Denbury Resources. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show, bud. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. I know it's been a lifetime, but what was that first itch or was that first thing to get you into IT? Oh, man. I It was... A long, long time ago, I was probably seven or eight years old in elementary school, and um, the uh, computer lab lady, she she wanted someone to go around and turn on all the machines throughout the whole building and, and the labs, and these were old, like, Power Macs, or maybe even Apple IIs. Two Apple IIs? Yeah, I remember the, the blue background and the white text. And yeah. Yeah. Um, so that I would get there early and boot up all the machines um, and just the little quirks of like, oh, why isn't this one booting up and why aren't the printers working and, and that kind of stuff I got my wheels turning. This is, this is kind of fun. And uh, my, my teachers, if they ever had issues and they didn't want to wait for the tech person to come, they'd be like, hey, Alan, take a look at this. Even when I was, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I guess go, growing up with that, I, I played a lot of computer games. Um, what, I liked, what was I your was, favorite? Man, Red Alert. Oh, really? What was that? Yeah. Uh, Command and Conquer, Red Alert. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then like the um, Age of Empires games and stuff like that. Legendary. Do you remember Age of Empires 2? Yeah. That, oh, that was half the land parties I had growing up as a kid. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Age of Mythology. Yep. That was fun. Um, I think Age of Empires. Yeah. What was your favorite Age of Empires? Probably two had an expansion that was really good. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, with like the Native American tribes and stuff. I think that, yeah. that one was cool. That was my favorite. That was the one we all had growing up. So we got the Age of Empires 2 originally when we all got our laptops for college. We have all the little land parties and stuff. Yeah. And we got the expansion and, shortly after. And um, I remember having to dial in to my friend's. Uh, and we do like network games. Oh, cool! But, uh, we would use like my fax line, so um, yeah, you had to like dial into their IP address to have. Before there was like BattleNet right. and all those things, yeah. you'd have to like dial in, and that, oh, that wow. was fun. <laughs> um, and then yeah, I would always get like the hand-me-down computers from my dad, and um, when I was thirteen, I was like, I'm sick of having old yeah the <laughs> windows 3.1 or whatever <laughs> like i want a windows 95 or windows 98 at the time i think it was so i remember going to fry's and uh just piecing it all together and, and building using all my allowance for the whole summer basically to like scrap together something oh yeah uh, 
uh, a store was the best. Yeah. They, they had everything. They did. Yeah, you could even get like washer and dryer and, yeah. and a power supply for your computer. Like, right? Literally. <laughs> it got to the point where it was literally everything. I mean, I grew up where a lot of my friends now would go there for the, like, the airsoft guns and then yeah. all the old Xbox supplies for all of that. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. One of the funny stories about like getting into the software aspect and software troubleshooting was um, my dad would put this like nanny software, like web filter mm-hmm. on the computer so I couldn't go to bad sites and stuff. And so I learned how to reinstall Windows because it, it was a password protection uninstall. So you oh, couldn't really? uninstall it without the password. Mm-hmm. And um, so the my solution was, oh, I have all the Windows 95 disks or sloppies or whatever oh, yeah. it was at the time. And just I would be able to do that before he would get home from work. <laughs> and he wouldn't notice for a little while. And then... Uh, Every couple of weeks, he's like, "Oh, why isn't the software on here? What's what's going on?" And he'd reinstall it, and then I'd have to reinstall everything <laughs> else again. <laughs> um, and then I guess in high school was the turning point where I was like, "Hey, this could be a career uh, with with programming." Mm-hmm. I don't do much programming in my day to day. I do a little bit of JavaScripting, but in high school, it was a Java class, uh, and it was a, an elective, and it was really fun. I remember. I hated math, but I liked looking at things in steps mm-hmm. and breaking, you know, a problem down into, you know, the eight math functions that had to happen to get you the answer. Yeah. And then letting the computer do it. That, so I didn't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think programming was really where I was like, hey, I'm gonna, if, if you're trying to find something and you need to loop through certain iterations until you get the answer, mm-hmm. this is really fun. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say that's gotta be. A, I can't mention the satisfaction of building one of those programs from scratch too. I, that's yeah. way beyond my pay grade. <laughs> well, I went to uh, UTA, UT Arlington, for computer science. Oh, really? Uh, but after one semester there, I was like, "This is expensive. Oh, it's yeah. not very fun. They're making you like build all of your own like programming libraries and not just call ones that are already there." Really? And the the um, compiler had all the shortcuts turned off and wouldn't like wouldn't do the syntax highlighting. So it wouldn't like tell you if you missed a curly bracket or a parenthesis somewhere. It just wouldn't run. And it wouldn't even say what line is the issue because they wanted to like hammer it into you of like you need to know how to catch all these things yourself and not to rely on the software to do it. Oh jeez. But that was so infuriating to me. It was like I want to build something. Yeah. I want to like make something that makes someone's lives easier or something that a business would use, not sit there and count my parentheses. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost as, a, as crazy as saying to someone, you can only visit this website that's, you know, five or ten words long. You have to type in the URL manually and make sure every single thing is right. Yeah. Instead of just going to... Well, and our, our tests were handwritten. What? Yeah, they would give us a <laughs> sheet of paper and a pencil, and we had to do the indentions and, like, write the code out. What? Yeah. <laughs> how unrealistic or unapplicable is that to the real world? And then I, <laughs> I looked and saw like how much math to get the degree was because it was in the engineering school. Mm-hmm. It was going to go like through calculus three. Oh, geez. And I'm like, I'm not going to program the Mars rover. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to like make something that helps someone's spreadsheet do something better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's when I decided I was like, oh, there's 
programming in the business school mm-hmm. called MIS, uh, and that's a lot better than actual software engineering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit closer to what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then how do you get your first role in IT? Uh, that was a funny story. So after UT Arlington, uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to, this is before I knew about the business school thing. Um, I just went to community college, got my associates. Oh, nice. And was just going to figure it out from there. Yeah. And the summer I graduated with my, um, associates, I saw a Craigslist ad of just looking for a recent college grad with, um, who's good with computers Mm -hmm. and uh, good at troubleshooting and and can do hands-off and, you know, figure stuff out on their own. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I I called the guy, and he was a headhunter for an oil and gas company in downtown Fort Worth. Really? But he didn't, like, tell me any of this. He's like, hey, let's meet at this Mexican restaurant. And um, he just kind of, like, I guess – we just had a conversation. Yeah. And he was like, oh, you seem bright enough. You can figure it out. Um, you'll have an interview tomorrow at 10 a.m. at this a- this address. Yeah. And it was a big building. Uh, so, and I couldn't really f- figure out what company it was going to be for or anything. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this is a big skyscraper. They said the 14th floor, but I don't really know. So, even going into it, I had no idea what this company did. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was oil and gas. And, um Started out just, you know, fixing printers, replacing toner, mm-hmm. um, you know, hey, why isn't my mouse working? Oh, your batteries are dead. Yeah. I had like <laughs> level zero <laughs> troubleshooting. Yeah. Um, and then they got me more into like documenting all the steps and, hey, we have a new piece of software. Can you like show the screenshots of how to install this like yeah. one by one instead of, so I would make all the documentation, disaster recovery documentation too of like, Here's you know all the passwords to things and what was that like? Up in the city. What was it like when you first started? Was that you know good old tape backup or what, yeah. what was the backup process yeah, like? Yeah, tape backups and um, it was a pretty small company. I think it was about 200, 250 people, uh, and so there were only three IT people and then a oh director. Wow. Um, and so we did a little bit of everything. Like I was the only only help desk uh, that only did help desk. The other guys were kind of sysadmins, yeah. networking. They did kind of everything. So one person for help desk for over 200, you know, 200 plus people. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. That's and a lot. A lot of the times the answer was just, okay, re-image it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that we, we used um, Norton Ghost. Oh, really? To, to lay down the images. Yeah. So this is like way before SCCM and stuff. It was, it was a learning experience for sure. And then that company got bought by my current company mm-hmm. um, and moved here to Plano. Um, I was a contractor at the time. I was a, it was funny. It was a, it's a six-month contract when I started at the first place, Encore. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the six months, they were actively, like, trying to be sold. Oh, really? That was the plan is, like, we just need to, like, buy all these assets, yeah. prove that, you know, there is oil there, mm-hmm. and then try and get sold to somebody. And so at the end of the my six-month contract, they were, they were like, okay, well, we're being bid on by Anadarko and Chevron and, like, all these other companies. Yeah. Um, and we can't bring on new headcount because all of our finances are, are frozen, basically. Well, yeah, like, they're, like, documenting, like, this is what our G&A yeah. is. Um, so 
they just kept extending it and going month to month oh, for really? three years. So oh my I was gosh! A contractor really? for I think it was like thirty four months or something. Yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and then Encore or uh, when Denberry bought us, it was the the first thing they did was bring on all the contractors that they. Oh, that's awesome. Order to, so yeah. Yeah. The the li- probably literally the best success story I've ever heard from Craigslist, like ever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I was still just on the help desk then, uh, but we were in the process of switching our ticketing system from Numara Track It, because mm-hmm. I guess BMC had bought them, and they were like, "Hey, you either need to go to Footprint, mm-hmm. or we can go to some other competitor." And at the, yeah. at the time, ServiceNow was still a startup. They yeah. just went public. Um, they were very cheap. I think their company was smaller than Denberry was. Really? Yeah. Like, wow. I think their market cap was, like, one and a half billion. And yeah. And we were, like, three or four. And I'm like, oh, this is great. Um, that's, that's quite some time ago. So they were a startup and they were cheap. Yeah. ServiceNow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> they, they, like, sold themselves as, like, hey, we're a cloud database yeah. that you can program to do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And we just happened to make a ticketing uh, platform Solution. out of it yeah. as a proof of concept to sell to yeah, but you can make it do whatever you want. It's just tables and and records, and you can write scripts that like when a new record is added on this table to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all JavaScript, and I already knew Java. Oh, perfect. And I was like, hey, I can customize this thing to do anything. You can you know digitize all these workflows that are just email processes right now. Save um, save a lot of time. And so that's where I started getting promoted um, a lot in the company is because I was on the help desk, but I knew some programming. I knew the IT ticketing system. So I helped implement all of that for, for Denberry. And then other departments throughout Denberry came to me and saying, hey, we have a shared mailbox mm-hmm. for accounts payable. Yeah. That, hey, someone needs to be paid, and they just email you know, something, something at denberry.com, and it would go to a shared mailbox, mm-hmm. but nobody knew who was working what, what oh, the really? status of it was. If someone went on vacation or maternity leave, oh geez, they just wouldn't reply for months. And they're like, we need something like tangible. Yeah. Who's doing what and what state is it in? You don't think it slips through the cracks yeah. or vendors like it's been. And so I pointed that email box to just create records on another table for them. Yeah. And now they're ticketing. And we did that for... That's brilliant. Six or seven departments. Oh, wow. And so that's why it's funny, like, my title is a service process manager mm-hmm. because I'm not just the help desk manager or the asset manager. I also, like, help digitize a lot of the workflows yeah. uh, in ServiceNow uh, for, for the whole company. That's brilliant. Yeah. That, that made a lot of lives easier. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, it's funny because they would uh, they would get like halfway through implementing, and I would show them like how you can report on it and make pie charts and mm-hmm. you know trend things over time of seeing what you know who's working what or how long it takes to solve which type of request, and it would just blow their minds. And yeah. in IT, it didn't make like oh we've been using this for decades, but yeah. other parts of the business, and especially oil and gas, they're a lot slower. Mm-hmm pick this kind of stuff up um just the fact that they could see 
hey, this time last year was busy. This time next year might be busy, and they can like hire you know a contractor and yep. adjust for it. Uh, the, they never knew the seasonality. Oh, really? Was just keeping their head above the water. Yeah, and never could see the the trees before the forest or whatever the saying yeah. is. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's huge because I know contracting is a really big part of oil industry. Yeah, because there's so much fluctuations. A lot of people don't realize all mm-hmm. the fiscal as well as human investments. When if you're going to like go explore a new drill site. Yeah. And if it's, you know, once you prove it exists, well, then you got to ramp up quick. And a lot of times, you know, contractors are a great, great way to do that. Yeah. And it, it's a very boom or bust industry. And it, it's almost every seven to eight years, you'll like have a lot of money all of a sudden. And yep. then you can barely sell the oil for a profit. You're just breaking even. Exactly. Or lose. Yeah. Because I remember when COVID first hit, like the U.S. government, um, they had the opportunity to buy oil from, like, um, buy crude oil barrels from oil companies for like twenty three dollars a barrel. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, "That's too expensive. That's just a handout to the oil industry." And now, I th- what's it up to now? Like a hundred, hundred twenty? It's it hit like <laughs> a, yeah, a little over a hundred. I think it's like eighty something. Now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. like we could have gotten it for twenty six dollars a barrel. <laughs> well, but, and, uh, oh man, it's oh, frustrating man. <laughs> working with IT vendors because every single year they want, especially cloud, mm-hmm. they want eight to ten percent or twelve percent increase every year, regardless. Oh, yeah. And we're like, well, oil hasn't been going up yeah. that much. You know, we haven't drilled eight percent more wells. Exactly. We're declining. You know, after you have fifty wells every year, you're getting less and less and less from them. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're drilling more. Yeah. And they're just not set up for that. And we're like, we, we can't just come out with oil 2.0. Yeah. Or put <laughs> a lot of money in R and D, and all of a sudden have a new product. Yeah. We're just at the whim of the market. Yeah. It's a global market too. A lot of people don't realize yeah. how all the prices are set and all the supply chain is manipulated. Yeah. OPEC control. can decide one thing. Yep. And you know, screw us over, or we're jumping for joy and having lobster tonight. Exa- <laughs> exactly. <knows>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just there's so many variables in that industry, and there's so a lot of people don't realize all the processes that have to go into actually getting the fuel to the point where you could put it in your vehicle. Yeah. Well, and it's so it's so different from like the startup mentality of. Um, I know a lot of new companies will just go on Amazon um, and get all their servers. Oh, yeah, AWS. They'll do operating expenses. But we can't do operating expenses because that gets calculated into cost per barrel. Oh, really? And so it it messes up our whole economics of, like, how much did this barrel of oil take to get out of the ground? But if we do CapEx, it's a one-time, it gets written off, you know, they're Hey, you know, it's not a reoccurring expense, mm. so it doesn't get, you know, intertwined with every barrel of oil. That'd be so hard, especially with, I mean, I've yet to per- meet the person who could accurately predict what your cloud bill is going to be month to month. Yeah. I mean, tra- imagine trying to calculate that and take into account, build that into the cost of the barrel, and then when do you calculate it? Is it once the fluid is put into the barrel? Is that when it gets expensive, or is it after? Or? Well, and... So it's, it's so it's hard. It's kind of a misnomer because they don't actually put them in barrels, but they just measure them. Yeah. In barrels, you know, usually they're in pipelines or trucks or whatever. Really? Yeah. Um, so it's just I, a unit of. Uh, yeah, I think it's well, like more often than not, it's just a unit of me- measurement. It's like fifty-five gallons or, or something around there. Yeah. And then d- based on the density, like how much water is it versus how much oil is it, mm. that could change. So it, it yeah. might be a hundred gallons of liquid, but it's yeah. only one barrel of oil in there. Exactly. A lot of people forget, like, well like all things like lithium or gold, you need to get a lot more in material to get down to the actual refined product. Yeah. 
like you need you know so many tons of ore to actually make one good pound of copper lithium gold what have you yeah but it's not a one-to-one it'd be magically awesome if it was a one-to-one ratio <laughs> but <laughs> yes yeah, so i think that's from. what a lot of people don't understand why oil and gas has been so slow into getting into the cloud yeah and software as a service and everything because we don't want it to hurt the price per barrel well no yeah no no one wants it to go up yeah i mean <laughs> and because you're you're graded like all the analysts at the investment banks look at you and say like hey you're an expensive oil and gas company if it costs you forty dollars a barrel mm-hmm. to get it out of the ground yeah well they're going to invest in someone that's eighteen dollars a barrel instead it's more, much more profitable yeah. but who knows if that eighteen dollar barrel company is just overspending capex all the time that's true if it's cloud, if you can flex up and flex down, so much mm-hmm. easier. But they don't, they don't have a monetary value to that. Yeah, that'd be a lot more difficult. Yeah. And then what's the biggest challenge that you've seen lately? Um, lately, growth has. Um, I know in the '80s, I heard that the whole peak oil mm-hmm. fear was going to happen, and so no. There was no new engineers. Was, it, was that so? The was that when they were worried that there was no, not going to be any more oil? Or yeah, they were worried they were going to run out of oil. Oh yeah, I hear um, every ten years you get that. Yeah, warning. <laughs> but technology has always made it so you can extract more. Yeah, like fracking. So, yeah, that was, that was revolutionary. And that's yeah. what our company does. Is it's called tertiary recovery. So after the, when you just you know make the first puncture, mm-hmm. and the oil just comes out as it equalizes pressure. Mm-hmm. That's primary and then secondary is when they inject water in and get oil out mm-hmm. in through displacement of the, the oil and the water and then ours is we get co2 from a lot of the times anthrop- anthropogenic sources like um, natural gas fired power plants oh really and we scrub the co2 off the, the smokestacks and pump it through a pipeline inject it into the ground keep it there yeah so it's you know, negative carbon footprint that's awesome. even the oil we get out when it's burned mm-hmm. is less than the you know the straight uh pure carbon dioxide we're putting in really yeah uh that's and there's brilliant. a lot of tax credits now that oh really that are helping with that how's that work out um so that that bill the inflation reduction act that oh, yeah. just got passed a few months ago it doubled the um, the tax credit per ton of CO2. Mm-hmm. It used to be, I think, $35 per ton if you used it in oil and gas production. Mm-hmm. If you did straight, like, putting it in the ground, not getting anything out just for sequestration is what it's called, um, they would give you $55 per ton. So what what is sequestration or what was sequestration that is just like using the underground reservoir as a vault. Oh really? And just putting putting product in there down in there. Oh okay. CO two and not getting anything out. But if you put it in and get oil or natural gas out as mm-hmm. a byproduct, they want to penalize you a little bit, so they only give you thirty five dollars for that. They want to penalize you for being productive. Well, because then you're <laughs> gonna also make money on the oil or the whatever. So they don't want to give you more tax and you get a product you can go off and sell. Sounds like a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the times it, it makes more sense to do that. Mm-hmm. But there's some reservoirs that don't have any oil gas left. Mm-hmm. So we just 
But Interesting. Um, with that new act that was just passed, it almost doubled everything. So I think it's like 80 or $90 per ton for oil and gas use mm. and 120 or somewhere in the hundreds for sequestration. So that's a whole different business model. Yeah. We have our traditional oil and gas company, and then we have a whole new department that's started from zero, and they have 50 or 60 employees. Really? Um, that's just CCUS, which is carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Right. So dip, so in layman's terms, depending on how you store it, you get money back from the government or credits well, off your taxes? It, from the, the source, so like the, the natural gas power plant, for every ton of CO2 they don't Create. release into the atmosphere, yeah, they would get a tax credit for that hundred or eighty mm-hmm. bucks. But they would need to pay us to get rid of it safely and go put it somewhere. So oh, we get a, okay. a fraction of that. Mm-hmm. But for keeping it out of the air yeah. and it to get more oil out of the ground mm-hmm. it's a win-win we used to have yeah. to pay them for the co2 really now they get to pay us for the co2 hey that's awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so i think that's our biggest challenge is just we, we went through um we went through a bankruptcy mm-hmm. uh in 2021 with oil price when it kind of cratered yeah and, um we were way in debt we had over two billion Wow. And through the bankruptcy and restructuring, we were able to get rid of all that debt. Excellent. And then luckily everything turned around too. It just timed it well. And um, so now going from back to back to back layoffs before the bankruptcy, mm-hmm. I think we, we were only one third the size that we were in 2015. And now we've like had to almost double in a year or two. Oh wow! And so that's been the biggest challenge for the help desk to keep on top of and the servers. Um, and and also, 2015 is when oil crashed from 90 down to 30. Yeah, a barrel. And um, we, um, yeah. So we had all those layoffs. We also weren't purchasing any new servers mm. or laptops or desktops. Like everything yep. was on hold. Yeah. And so we were like making do with six, seven, eight year old machines. Oh, wow. Until this last year. And then we're like, okay, we have budget finally. We yeah. can upgrade <laughs> all this stuff. And at the same time, we're like, oh, we also need to increase our cybersecurity because yep. the whole colonial pipeline. Yeah, that, that's that, a big away. That lit a fire under every oil and gas company. We're like, we can't let that happen to us. Yeah. So. <laughs> heavily in cybersecurity. We have a whole cybersecurity team that went from zero to, I think, three or four people now. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So it's, it's just been, I mean, it's been fun, but it's been crazy. Good challenge. Yeah. It seems like of all c- sectors that's considered, you know, essential business, I'm guessing you guys were in the office working through COVID to make sure. Yeah. Um, it was funny. We had a letter from our CEO that we could show to a police officer if we got pulled over during the, the depths of COVID when was able to travel mm. They're like just show this and you should be able to go to work yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's 
like, yeah, things will get a lot worse if people can't heat their homes or get electricity to their houses. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, that's not going to be good. <laughs> and then what's your favorite part, part of working at the company? Um, I like that it's pretty scrappy in terms of um, manpower in IT. Like I said, that, that company, there's 250 employees and only three IT guys. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same with, you know, we, we were at our biggest, I think the company was around 1,800, mm-hmm. and we only had 11 That's IT it. guys. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> in the infrastructure and support side. We yeah. have a lot of SAP developers mm-hmm. and, and database guys and stuff yeah. like that. But in the, the infrastructure side, yeah, we only had like 11 or 12. Oh, my gosh. And, and that's also including all of our field sites and everything. So we had two or three guys out in the field. Yeah. And the other, you know, 10 or so here in the office. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I think we've got something like 30 to 40 field locations. Some of them are just a trailer with, you know, two desktops and mm-hmm. five guys that rotate out. But some of them are 60 or 70 people there. Oh, my gosh. And, and this was without a contract for like a managed service or like a, a external yeah. help desk I mean, we, assistance. We tried, we tried a one eight hundred number mm-hmm. help desk guy uh, company back in 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. and we just have such weird old software. Yeah, that they couldn't support it well. Oh, really? Um, like a lot of our homegrown applications for oil and gas accounting, or uh, landowner um, royalty payments and stuff like that. Yep. is just so niche that you can't just pull an IT company off the shelf and say, like, hey, can you help support, support this, this app? Thing? Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. You guys done a lot of internal development? Sometimes, yeah. We, we have a team of two or three database engineers that also do a little bit of coding, and they've built some apps that will um, help bring in different sources of you know, oil production mm-hmm. and standardize them send out daily or weekly reports to let us know, you know, how much oil is being made. And then out of curiosity, how does that work with the property rights or when you're working with the property owners? Yeah, and the, the property owner whole thing is is interesting. We have, you know, uh, we don't really have customers. <laughs> really? We have, um, we sell all of our oil to pipelines mm-hmm. at the time that they take it. And um, so, you know, the whole company might only work with six know refineries and pipelines or something like that mm-hmm. and it, it, it don't quote me on it but I, I it's probably not exactly six but oh yeah, you know but it's business to business yeah exactly we don't have to worry about yeah you, know, you don't own the customer gas credit cards yeah. and point of sale systems and all that kind of stuff yeah but the only time we do interface with uh, average <laughs> humans yeah <laughs> are uh, the royalty owners mm-hmm. so the people that own the land above where getting oil out of the ground and sometimes those are handed down for generations and you know great great grandchildren of this ranch that they don't even own anymore but they kept the rights really and they're getting like one one twenty eighth of the royalty payment yeah because <laughs> it's been split so many times since then and really if the check doesn't show up or they don't get the right amount or whatever they they call our little hotline oh yeah we have a whole team of owner relations Oh, really? That just deal with all that. One of my friends was buying a house, and he was explaining to me the importance of owning the mineral rights. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't realize if you buy a plow of land in the U.S., 
you might own that pile. You might own you can build a house there. You can own the land, but do you find you know gold or you know even like oil well over there? That's not yours. That's someone owns the rights to that actual asset, kind of like the sky. It's harder now. I think a lot of the times the developers that develop the neighborhoods mm-hmm. keep the mineral rights. Oh uh, yeah, pass it on, and then they sell it to banks and investment companies and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. So it, it's more rare that just an individual would have the the, the rights. Yeah. Gosh dang, that'd be nice to have, right? <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's only eighty bucks or forty bucks or something, but it's yeah. passive. Ex- exactly. It's just, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah, I need to read the fine print if I ever had the privilege of buying a rancher house. Be like, where's the mineral rights? Yeah. Do I get that, <laughs> or do they? Du- or would owning the mineral rights double the price of the land or the cost? I don't know. It depends. Yeah, especially with CCUS. Um, injecting co2 into those reservoirs under people's houses they'll get money per each ton really put under there yeah just to so i guess um for in layman's terms that's a that's a safe way to store it so they're taking the co2 yeah. they're pumping into underground reservoirs so it can kind yeah, of stay cause there. these reservoirs have held natural gas and oil for millions of years without leaking so they're airtight you know two three miles under the surface oh wow and so we can use them to hold the CO2 and just make sure to seal it up real well. And there's nothing stopping it from lasting another few million years. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to reuse that, that land area. That's, I never, I, I've never thought of that. That's a brilliant idea right there. And it's stuff like, you don't think about how big rocks are. Like they're in the millions and millions of tons. Millions? And some of them, our CO2 source that we were using for a long time before we started doing industrial CO2 was naturally occurring like underground volcanoes. So we bought the mineral rights to use the CO2 from the underground volcano. What? And it had like two trillion cubic meters. Where was it? And this was in America? In Mississippi, yeah. Really? Yeah. Underground volcanoes? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's... Wow. That's always been scary when I hear like, "Oh, we're gonna drill another well to get more CO two from this underground volcano." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like let's let's poke a hole in it. <laughs> I would, yeah, that'd be. I wouldn't have placed any money on. Are there underground volcanoes in America? I would have never guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all the geology is crazy. Um, I remember in my when I was at Tarrant County College summer that I did an elective geology trip because mm-hmm. I, I needed nine credits or eight credits for my yearly amount to graduate. Yeah. And they're like, hey, it's 15 days into the summer. We're going to go on a road trip around the Colorado Basin. And we're going to go to Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and back. And every single night you're going to pitch in your tent, sleeping on the ground, and we're going to show you all the geology of Colorado. Oh, cool. And so we had a geologist as a speaker. And I think that really sparked my interest in, hey, a lot of geologists go into it wanting to study the Earth and the planets. And I know in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of geologists were just coming to because they wanted to work on minerals. Oh, really? And then when we stopped going all the geologists left, it was a lot of oil and gas companies. 
And really? so a lot of them were kind of shady, shaded or jaded. Yeah. Um, they wanted to go to the moon. Yeah, they wanted to, like, study planets. Yeah. The macro level, yeah. and not like uh, get fossil fueled out of this hole. In the ground. Yeah, this hole, this like <laughs> this hole in this state, this location, yeah. or go to the moon. Yeah, which is a shame. We just once we got there, we're like, eh, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then to loop back something I alluded to earlier, like in the eighties, a lot of students weren't going into petroleum engineering or machine learning really because they thought crude oil was going to happen. Oh, and yeah. they'd be like. Why get a degree in petroleum engineering if it's not going to exist? Yeah. yeah. And so there was this, like, they called it, like, the lost generation of petroleum engineering students in the 2000s and 2010s. Um, and if you, in, in 2005, 6, 7, you, you started to see a lot more um, mm. after fracking and all that. That was probably, yeah. it, it, was that probably... Is it safe to say that was the biggest technological advancement in the industry in our lifetime? It's definitely one of them because it flipped the whole script of oh. peak oil no longer being a supply issue and being a demand issue. And, and I guess for the layman's people in terms, what is fracking for folks that aren't in the industry or may, um, may have only heard of the term on the news? I'm, I'm not. <laughs> just in layman's terms, yeah. just like conceptually. Um, from my understanding, it's where you drill into so traditional oil was in big pockets in like the 80s and 90s and then it sort of shaved and drained and was found in big, weird shape. Big tube, yeah. yeah. And you just you go in and you find the best oil. Um, but all those are basically fracking e Even in the Middle East or, or is it? Yeah, because I think Middle East Developed fracking really um, and and it's it's kind of hard to know that you know they don't audit the reservoirs yeah the same way we audit the reservoirs they just say hey yeah it's coming in 12 million years of oil yeah but they don't tell you like how intense or how hard it is to get that oil out mm -hmm. um, but yeah so all those huge reservoirs that are that are new um, the ones that are left are thin inches tall but stacked crazy hundreds of feet so they literally rock the water to ten feet really? and they go from there and so it's still thousands tens of thousands or millions of barrels of oil mm -hmm. but they're in these little little frozen frozen little pockets strips. Like, yeah yeah and so fracking you drill down into those and then use a hydraulic fracture Separator. Hydraulic fracturing, is that when they just inject the goo, or they use um, the force of the liquid hitting the rock to break the rock? Yeah. yeah. So like, they, they drill down there, and then they, they have mud or kind of a detergent sometimes, depending yeah. on, on the stickiness, and they pull this pressure to crack all of these thin layers of rock, and then... So I think that helped flip the script of, hey, one day we're going to not run out of oil, mm. but we won't. We will no longer need it as much, yeah. except for some plastics and things like that. But even then, you know, there's found ways to make plastics out of 
Really? So that's the issue with a lot of those. They say they're green technology. I they're. I debate if they truly are green. When you look at like uh like especially solar panels. So California had a big issue, uh, recently, where you know you buy these solar panels and a lot of folks don't realize they're not made of you know magic pixie dust. Mm-hmm. They they have a lot of corrosive and hazardous materials within it, including you know, I think they have mercury. They have the safe stuff like copper, aluminum, but once that solar panel is dead, because they do like everything in life, they eventually stop working. Yeah. How do you recycle the darn things? So there's an article a couple weeks ago that was saying, if you recycle this solar panel, you'll receive maybe $2 in aluminum and copper, or it could be equivalent $2 yeah, in most expensive materials. Yeah. Exactly. However, the price to environmentally safely recycle that panel is like $48. Wow. So right now they're trying to figure out, well, what technology or steps does it take to make it so that the cost to properly dispose of it and take it apart is maybe fifty cents or a dollar, so it's a fiscal win to recycle. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, kind of like IT hardware, where sometimes it's profitable because of the mineral or not, I was going to say minerals, the materials of the actual hardware, and or you know other companies might reuse it based on legacy apps. Mm-hmm. But that's a, I know GE just laid off another couple hundred employees from their windmill, um, their oh, yeah. windmill windmill department in their company, mm-hmm. and. Just because those things are, they ca- last turbines. Yeah, yeah the, t- the turbines. It's just one of those things where the ROI is like twenty five year. Yeah. So it's a terrible fiscal investment, and the big issue there is, you know, how do you one generate the power? It's not doing that efficiently enough with the current technology. Mm-hmm. But then how do you store it? That's our. I think those will all be solved in our lifetime. Yeah. But it, it just you need a technological breakthrough to make it profitable. Yeah, I then know you'll have mass adoption. One of the big, um, I'm sure shots, but getting less and less of a moonshot as the science is improving is ammonia for burning in power plants. Mm-hmm. So instead of burning natural gas, using like CO2 as byproduct, yeah. they've found a way to burn ammonia to make the ammonia gas. And hydrogen as well really so it's way 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 cleaner yeah and in the process of making it all the co2 is accounted for because it's in this vacuum of space so yeah you're in a lab all right? the waste can be sucked back into either the pipelines and into the ground like we're doing or can be reused in plastic mm-hmm. whatever we're gonna in the long term do with that Cool storage planners yeah, yeah. And then we can use that liquid ammonia to have a cargo ship to go places that we that need a very energy-dense fuel source mm-hmm. and liquid to burn without fossil fuels. Yeah, but I'm still shocked that cargo ships are not nuclear-powered. <laughs> I, I mean, because if, if anyone, it's funny, everyone is upset of, you know, the average consumer or protester, they're going like, why does a person need a Hummer or a truck? I'm like, that is nothing compared to the cost of getting your goods from China because those well, and those cargo ships they don't burn just normal diesel. Oh no, they <laughs> burn something that has a, a, a liquid coal 
and the engines the engines are a little like in terms of I guess for folks that don't know what a traditional internal combustion engine is, you got you know cylinders where you have a tube and the piston goes up and down. Just that one piston is bigger than a person on a on those giant those giant ships. I know um, Japan is investing heavily in Oh really? And they they want to I think they're the ones that want to be self-sustaining or uh, yeah net negative CAG by like 30 or 35 mm-hmm. yeah and when Fukushima happened and they burned off all our nuclear power plants yeah the only way they were going to get there was They've been investing in last till now. Oh, really? Um, but they want to set up ammonia plants and heat and sulfur plants in Fukushima and Japan to make and then put it on cargo ships and take it back because I guess they can't get the ammonia to the regulator to <laughs> do it in yeah. Japan. Yeah. But here we're like, hey, you can. That's you can make anything you want in the Gulf of yeah. Mexico. <laughs> we <That's> don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's the garbage pit of oh. the oceans anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I forget the acronym. There's an acronym that's like not in my backyard. Yeah, NIMBY. Yeah, thank you. It's just hilariously hypo- hypocritical. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of policy where it's like, we shouldn't drill in the oil in the U.S. Let's just buy from Venezuela. Oh, okay. Well, and I think <laughs> one of the other reasons that they wanted to do it in America is because of that byproduct. They don't have a way to handle and they can't store it properly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I all see the what you're millions saying. of tons of CO two that's here. You got all those pockets, right? Yeah. And we've got our CAG pipeline running from Houston. Oh really? Right through that whole industrial complex. So they can really concentrate there and give us all the CO two that we need. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. It'll be fascinating to see what technological breakthrough comes through in terms of energy consumption as yeah. well as you know, what's going to be the next generator. Or will we someday reach that mythical, what is it, fusion? Oh, yeah. Cold, cold it's fusion. It's, it's always like 10 years away. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> is it, what was it? I think it was proven, like it, it was an experiment that was shown to work mm-hmm. one time in Russia. It wasn't Russia? Yeah, I, they, I think even more recently they, they, they can't made it last as long as possible really but it is still more energy per than when it came out that was yeah, and yeah. it reached like somewhere in the nine degrees celsius it was like hotter than the surface of the sun oh my gosh but they were <laughs> like hey now it's an engineering problem it's no longer a math problem yeah it's an engineering problem once we can make something that can contain that energy mm-hmm. it will work yeah if we're able to and those are the kind of challenges that Former engineer, <laughs> and I still think to myself, I like to solve those problems. That'd be fascinating. How do you contain all that power, or what, what substance, or what material either exists or can we create yeah. to properly properly hold it? I mean, it's a combination of magnetic levitation inside of a vacuum. Yeah, because then you have a magnetic heat component around the magnetic substance, mm-hmm. which is magnetic. But it's just, and, and they're they're playing with that. AI that can fluctuate heating and rest people in really? chairs. And so if you've got like AI machine learning that can react faster than a human. human, if it if it starts to wobble, mm. that people can get it back into a human. Sounds a lot like Spider Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
So is AI already creeping into the oil industry as well? Yeah, uh, we have a, a few HPC clusters who do like polarization analysis. Oh, really? Um, to figure out, you know, how much oil is left in a jet that can't even get that into a system or that just kind of in this weird shape and figure out the best way to mine or replace oil out. Um, and so we can run the sim the simulation to do polarization analysis and take into consideration all that stuff that's going on. Well, that's a science in and of itself. It's not just, you know, sticking a straw into a cup. Yeah. So it, it could be, so conceivably, it's more efficient depending on the angle and the location and all that. And you might have other companies that are hitting that same reservoir at that location. So you really? You don't know how big those drill bits are or how big the drill height is that can account for all of that. So how does that work in terms of logistics and legality if you have multiple companies going after the same of resources or the same um, reservoir? Or yeah. I mean, it usually doesn't happen in a small enough area. Like, in a traditional, like, you would, you wouldn't ever really interfere. But now that it's getting down to the last of the oil and the sediment are, like, miles and miles away. Yeah. You might, you know, at the time, you might think, like, oh, I'm going to go into those lockups. This is part of the bigger yeah. structure. So how's that work with the mineral rights? If you have, let's say, just like this this piece of paper, you have, you know, I own that plot of land, you know, Bobby owns that plot of land, but the piece of paper is the whole oil. Yeah. When you're when it's extracted, I does the, do the profits get split? I think they just pay by the out. Like do they calculate? So do they calculate a percentage of like how much land you own within that reservoir? I'm I'm not sure, but that's why we have a whole like. Yeah, whole team. Land department. Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny the the land man that I called to figure out the the rights and all of that stuff. He's a lawyer, mm -hmm. and uh, even if they're female, they're called land man. It's funny they <laughs> kind of wear it as a badge of honor. Like I'm yeah. a land man, and the little cert certificate says land man. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, and all those like division. out how all of that works mm -hmm. so there's like whole accounting rationales and and little departments that figure out all of that all this all those crazy com crazy complex scenarios yeah and then, and then how does it get to the point where there's two businesses after the same well because i'm guessing in terms of coordination you coordinate with the land or i was about to say land owner but the land owner the mineral rights owner is it just because the wells are so big, they're going beyond one landowner, maybe? Or yeah. And then how does that work in terms of like, does the first company get it just pump as fast as possible, or like? I'm I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I know one of the other interesting things is um, LOL. Oh, I've been there. <laughs> trust me. <laughs> and what do you like to do outside the office? Um, well, before COVID and before had our little son who's four, 14 and a half months old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Time flies. Uh, we used to travel a lot. We would just do like international vacations every year. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I think when we got married, we were trying to figure out like how many countries we were going to go. Yeah. We've been to even before we got married. And it was like 13, 14 
and wow. and we added it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I know it's hard to say, but, or hard to pick, but what's the best country you visited outside the U.S.? For me, it was Japan. Oh, really? Yeah. Just, it was the one place that was so different from anywhere else on Earth and that it felt like you were on a different planet almost. Yeah. But in like a really cool, like, this is what travel is supposed to feel like. Yeah. Where it's kind of sad when you go to, you know, Western Europe. Mm-hmm. And everything's kind of like the same. Yeah, like London is basically New York. Really? You know, it's yeah. like okay, some of the food's a little different, but they all speak English. Yeah. Everything, everything's older. That's oh yeah. pretty cool. Architecturally, but culturally, there are two things that are completely the same movies for what? The same movies are coming out of the same time. Really? Yeah. Uh, maybe it's just the rose-tinted glasses of my thought of Europe growing up as a kid. Like I would have thought if you go to like England or you see all like boutique, you know, small movies, but they have the same blockbusters yeah. as the U.S. Yeah, especially with the, the consolidation of everything being like everything that makes kids happy, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then other than that, I like craft beer a lot. Uh, I got into that. Um, it, it was funny. I never liked beer till I was probably twenty five, twenty six. Oh, really? And then I started yeah. like, okay, maybe you know, I'll do a Miller Lite every now and then. That's what I think I have, or Shiner. Yeah. And then I. Blue Moon. I was like, oh, this is cool. There's a little orange on it. Exactly. Good marketing. And you can't see through it. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, And then some like British beers like uh, Newcastle. Oh, yeah. My dad Uh, likes that. I I like how roasty it tasted. Uh, I was like, oh, this kind of tastes like pecans. Yeah. They don't have pecans (laughs) in it. Like, this is just how the process is. And that got me into thinking about, oh, there's a brewery down the street. I'm going to go check it out. Yeah. Or bourbon barrel stouts. That's really where I went into. Over thirteen percent, it's almost a blonde. Really? Yeah. So what's that uh, for um, folks not not in well the industry? A stout is like a Guinness, mm-hmm. but Guinness is only five percent alcohol, so it's yeah. really hard to taste. It kind of tastes watery. Yeah. But think of it like even thicker, richer, more smokier beer, um, and not smokier like the ashtray smoke yeah. of Scotch, but like. Really? And that's why it's so dark, is because it's not smoky. It breaks open the alcohol, mm-hmm. and you taste the smoke before the aging process, and that's really interesting. And so all that caramelization and all that caramelization yeah. makes it into the beer, and so then it turns into kind of like a coffee. Yeah. Um, and so then they'll, they'll take those strong stouts that are already like 9 or 10%, and they'll put them in these infused bourbon barrels, six months to a year. Really? And year? like pour in a more oaky bourbon flavor into the barrel. Really? And it just tastes like a, a more palatable, like I'm actually into bourbons now and I like drinking bourbon. What, what's your favorite one? Um, the Wild Turkey 101. Mm-hmm. Classic. And like Rare Breed. I haven't tried Wild that one Turkey yet. Rare Breed. Where are they from? Uh, it's Wild Turkey, but they're like Oh, it's a higher end. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, and then I, I mean, if I'm on like a flight or I'm on a long trip, mm-hmm. I like the American Old Fashioned Classic or like Maker's Mark. Have you tried Maker's Mark? Have you ever tried that one out? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not that big of a fan. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like Dubai. 
Oh, those spicier. That was kind of my gateway to that the bourbon barrel stouts and the Chinese bar and the Mexican bar. Mm-hmm. I started that and I thought, oh, there's some other flavor that's not beer. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. And so I've been adding others. Oh, yeah. Um, before that, like the straight liquor, I was like, oh, it burns. I can't taste <laughs> anything. Yeah. But as you start appreciating the nuances, you're like, okay, I, I get this. Yeah, slowly pick up on it. Yeah, I think, I think – Hard to be an old fashioned. I'm that's that's probably one of the things I've learned to appreciate more as the older I get. Yeah, <laughs> I love old fashions. I don't like them too sweet. I mean, a lot of places put like a lot of sugar and syrup. And yeah, yeah. Put too hoppy or too sweet or whatever. I'm like, no. I have to. I usually have to check or ask them like, you know, how much are you adding to it? Yeah. You know, like this, just needs a little bit. A little bit goes a long way. Yeah. Just like salt, you know. Have you been to uh, Fogo de Cacao or Fogo? Oh yeah. Um, they have a smoked roast. Pineapple. Really? Yeah. I haven't tried that one yet. Yeah, because you know those Brazilian steakhouses, they'll have the pineapple. Um, oh, yeah. And they carve it up, and that's kind of the dessert. Yeah. Um, they'll usually carve up that pine in an old-fashioned. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I know my favorite spot locally to get old-fashioned lately has been um, Haywire, one of the oh, yeah. shops. They have a really good old-fashioned. Okay. Oh, yeah, it's it's one of those things. Have you ever ordered one that you didn't know you were going to like? And they were like massacred with bourbon barrels yeah. and smoke <laughs> <from> them? <laughs> like way more of a performance than I'm bargaining for. Oh, yeah. It's a lot a, a lot of bartending. Oh, a big part of liquor industry is advertising, marketing, and accoutrements to the yeah. actual presentation of the product. Although, I, um, what was it? I think Shake, not Shaker Tins, um, the cock, what was it called? Pepper? Pepper Smash. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite things when I first moved to Texas was their smoked Jack Daniels or smoked whiskey mix where they had the little apparatus or little mason jar where you have, you know, the ice, mm-hmm. the whiskey, and they would pump in this little puffer of smoke. And it was one of the most delicious drinks I ever had. And they do one with uh, Dr. Pepper. That's what it is, the yeah. smoked smoked Dr. Pepper. Yeah. And it used to be back in when they saw the contract, it used to be made in Dublin mm-hmm. at the Dublin you know, plant back when Dr. Pepper, you know, generations ago was first bottled over there. Yeah. And it was in a cute little bottle made with pure cane sugar, which to me always tastes infinitely better than corn yeah. syrup, personally. I, I didn't like how Dr. Pepper said they combined wine and rum and yeah. sever all ties. That, oh, that was heartbreaking. I don't know. I wonder if that was because of the new parent company, Keurig, because I thought it yeah. happened somewhat, because that was a big acquisition. But, yeah, that bottling plant, they still make some – I mean, if you go, I was in uh, the stockyards um, giving my family a tour mm-hmm. of it in Fort Worth, and they have a couple of those boutique yeah, soda like shops, where, and it's all Dublin. Like, Dublin they have all the Dublin company. sodas, and they taste great, but, yeah, the I mean, now they're going for outrageous money, at money on eBay, but, like, <laughs> the cute little bottle where it's not too much, because yeah. I think it was an eight-ounce yeah, eight eight ounce bottle, pure cane sugar, Dr. Pepper. Like, when I first moved to Texas, that was, like, one of the first things I did, because my uncle... He's lived in Houston for most of his life. He, when he would come visit us mm-hmm. at Christmas stuff, he would tell us about the allure and the mystery of this, the real Dr. Pepper. And you used to have to drive down there, yeah. too. Yeah. Because it was only that city. Because I guess because they were importing the – they couldn't distribute it. I forgot. So I actually got real deep on this because uh, I love business philosophy and business just history. And from one of the articles was saying one of the limitations used to be – because a lot of folks don't know, like um, – a business like Dr. Pepper, Coke, Pepsi, 
they own the rights to the formula and everything, but they use bottlers to actually produce yeah. the product. So they'll usually sometimes ship them the syrup, and then they'll add things. Mm-hmm. So what I read one time about the Dublin relationship with the Dublin bottling plant and Dr. Pepper was they could produce as much as they want, but they couldn't ship out within, I think it was like 350 miles. There was some funny calculation where that was the amount that a horse-drawn carriage can make within a day. It was really bizarre. Yeah. And, like, they had that thing where, okay, you can do this, but you cannot export it beyond that. So, you know, people were driving all over the country because that old clause was, like, mm. was still in the contract. Like, all right, we're allowing you to produce a product. You use the name, but you can't ship it to, like, Iowa or all these other places because we don't want it to. Yeah, you couldn't even get it in Dallas. No. Yeah. It was such a rare boutique item, and it's such an allure. And even though uh, um, Dr. Pepper eventually came out with a sugar or a pure cane sugar, it no, it did. And I, I'm not a fan of the new design bottles. I think they're 12 to 16 ounces, and just that cute little bottle that was such a brilliant idea. Well, it's like the the Mexican Coke and the Mexican Santa with the cane sugar. Yeah, with the pure cane sugar. With real glass bottles yeah. too. That's one of those things where yeah, I think uh, and then pe- it does this does the same thing with Pepsi too. Yeah. It. I don't know. I, most things taste better out of a bottle. I don't know why. There's probably maybe a science behind it, but gosh darn, it's hard to beat a real Coke or real Pepsi in a glass bottle on a hot summer day. Well, and that's the the, the curse of like being into craft beer is that when you put it in a, a Coke or a beer and you like take the lines out on it and mm-hmm. put it on the table, it's like you get that glass. Oh like yeah. <laughs> kind of the, the head on top. You gotta like smell it and it's like oh yeah. half of the taste is the smell you know exactly well i mean that's what i love hobby uh depending on who you ask it may or may not be a hobby but i love things like you know producing coffee or make making your own coffee or cigars where there's a lot of fun in the pageantly pageantry and the process of appreciating the whole thing and just even like the shapes of the bottle like the whiskey and the beer and um there's different shapes oh yeah that are like curled and round and it's crazy if you go down that rabbit hole it makes it fun. It's something yeah. that you can control and that you don't get out at bars all the time. Yeah. That you can have control of what's going on. In your, in your own yeah. environment, it's a lot more fun, too. Like, you can control the quality. You know mm-hmm. how much sugar is or isn't being added to it. or There's no mysteries to it, you know. <laughs> kind of like, you know, hunting and making your own food. You know exactly what's in it. Yeah. So you're in control of the process. And you can take your time where it's like, you know, sometimes if you're at a bar, it's all, you know, fast, fast, fast. Yeah. Oh, and then those places that advertise how cold the beer is, like, oh, this is going to be yeah. 29 degrees, and well, that's why you can't taste it. Yeah, well, your, count your mouth isn't made to taste freezing things. Yeah, <laughs> like boiling coffee. It's like, we have the hottest coffee. Why? Yeah. We, we all have an insulated uh, tumbler. We don't have to, you know, we don't, you don't have to nuke it because it's going to stay the same temperature for, like, you know, six plus hours or whatever. Yeah. Like, we have the technology. You can contain your coffee. <laughs> I don't want it to be scalding. I want to, like, personally, I want it to be a little bit room temperature so I can yeah. drink that, you know, drink the whole Yeah, they pot. say as closer to body temperature as it yep. is, the more it cools. Oh, exactly. But I know you got to get going. Thank you so much for coming yeah. on the show, bud. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Don't forget, Topping Talks is also on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe, like, comment, tell your family, tell your friends, tell your enemies, heck, tell anyone. Just stay safe. Y'all have a great day.
Topping Talks.